This episode of Full Armor Radio is brought to you by CR101 Radio Network. CR101 Radio Network is a Christian reconstruction internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24-7. You can learn more at CR101Radio.com. We're also brought to you by GCS Apprenticeship Program, which is dedicated to training the next generation of Christian teachers so they can own and operate successful and profitable Christian schools. You can learn more at gcsapprenticeship.com. And now to the show. Hello and welcome to Full Armor Radio. I'm your host, John O'Rourke. It's good to be back with you. Um, My ministry is Full Armor Ministries. Um, I do evangelism. Um, out here in East Tennessee, and um, do apologetics and uh, defend the Christian faith, the Christian worldview against um, all opposition. And um, today, I wanted to talk about uh, something in that same line of thinking. Uh, last Friday evening, uh, January twenty second, twenty twenty one, I engaged in a, a public moderated debate. Um, uh, over the issue of purgatory uh, with a Roman Catholic apologist. Um, this was done on, on the YouTube channel, The Gospel Truth. It's done through video conferencing, um, kind of like Zoom or, or Skype or something like that, um, where we debated the, the, debate, the debate topic, which was, is purgatory biblical? And I wanted to do, um, I wanted to talk about that today. I wanted to talk about the issue of purgatory and talk about um, some aspects of the debate as well. Um, I'll put a link in the description um, of this video or of the podcast um, to the debate so you can check it out yourself. Um, All of my podcasts are going to be found either uh, here on YouTube as well as um, on any podcast streaming service uh, besides these types of podcasts where I do apologetics and that sort of thing. Um, I also do. I also put up conversations, uh, recordings I've had with with strangers on the street, um, and me doing evangelism um, with them or to them rather, giving them the gospel, so that um, listeners, you all, can hear you know what it's like to talk to real people on the street and bring the gospel to them, so you can learn how to do it, um, learn how to answer objections that people will give to you on the street, and you can hear it. Uh, directly from non-Christians themselves. Instead of just me telling you what people say, you can hear it right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So that's what the what the podcasts are. Full Armor Radio um, on your on any podcast streaming service, and then also here on YouTube, I have uh, these Full Armor Radio programs. So I wanted to talk about, uh, again, the debate is purgatory biblical that I had with a Roman Catholic uh, fellow named Matthew Broderick. Um, and the, the debate, uh, I think, went rather well, ultimately. Um, there's a couple of notes I wanted to make um, about purgatory itself. It's, it's hard for me to fully grasp how well everything came across in the debate um, because I prepared so much for it and studied you know, purgatory. I wanted to make sure that those who saw the debate, one, understood, understood what purgatory really is supposed to be from the Roman Catholic view, and two, understand why it's wrong biblically and, and my arguments refuting it. So um, I'd encourage you to check out the debate. I think it's, it was good. I'm looking forward to hopefully doing some, some more moderated debates on, on a variety of subjects um, in the future. Um, but today, like I said, I'm going to talk about purgatory a bit. So the debate was, is purgatory biblical? So before I get into that, I want to just quickly define what purgatory is 
is so I, I have up here um, my my notes um, from the debate that I had that I had made, and I just wanted to read. I'm not going to go through everything that I that I did or everything that I said in the debate, but there are a few points I think that are important. Um, purgatory is an idea that um, at, from the Roman Catholic religion, and again, I'm arguing that it's a false idea, but it's an idea from the Roman Catholic religion that teaches that when you die, when a, when a true believer dies, when somebody who trusts in Christ dies, they, um, if they haven't had all of their venial sins atoned for in this life, then they will have to go to the state of purgatory, where the, the temporal punishment, which is due to their venial sins, will be atoned for um, by themselves um, in that state of purgatory. That is, in essence, you know what, what purgatory is all about. I'm going to break that down for you um, because there's a lot to unpack there. So, number one, um, purgatory is based off of the Roman Catholic um, doctrine of mortal and venial sins, which is also a false doctrine, but I won't get too much into that. But right here, um, under under point three here, I have um, something from the Catholic Catechism. So the Catholic Catechism, paragraph 1861, teaches that mortal sin causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. It says a bunch of other things, as you can see, but that's one of the things it says. That mortal sin causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. So it, it merit, mortal sin merits eternal punishment, according to the Catholic. But then venial sins, which are supposed to be um, less heinous sins in a different category than mortal sins. Venial sins, it says, merits temporal punishment due to sin. So a Catholic would say, and, and my opponent in the debate said, that Jesus paid for all of the eternal punishment due to sin. So that would mean that he's he's definitely paid for the mortal sins, which merit eternal death of hell. So Jesus has paid for paid the eternal penalty on the cross for for mortal sins and for hell. But there's temporal punishment for sins. So there's more there's eternal punishment and then there's temporal punishment. And um before I get into my arguments, let me just explain what that means from the Catholic side of things, the Catholic perspective. Um, a temporal punishment due to sin would mean that it's some, some sort of sin that you have to atone for either in this life or in purgatory after death. So, for example, they'll say that every, every sin, you know, merits a penalty um, and, and, and then sins, you can be forgiven of your sins by God. But at the same time, God will still hold the temporal punishment uh, hold you accountable to atone for the temporal punishment. So they'll say David, right? They'll say some 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 things in, in King David's life in the Old Testament. They'll say, for example, King David, you know, he took the census. He took that census, which was a sin, and he was punished for it. God gave him three options, um, which were um, three options for what kind of penalty he would receive for doing such a thing, and he received he, the penalty that he chose. So they would say, well, look, he was forgiven of his sin, but he still had to bear out a temporal punishment, a punishment that was temporary. Another example they would say, of course, is David and Bathsheba. They'd say, well, he was forgiven of the, the eternal consequence, the eternal penalty of his adultery and murder. But the temporal aspect of that, he was not, 
was not atoned for. Um, he had to atone for himself. So he lost his baby and he was, you know, put in exile for a time and so on and so forth. So they say everybody, you know, merits temporal punishment for sin due to venial sins. And even my opponent would say that mortal sins not only merit eternal punishment, but they also may merit temporal punishment. I don't know if that's official dogma. It doesn't say that in the Catholic Catechism here, but maybe it does somewhere else. But that was my opponent, Matthew Broderick's position. So they would say that you know, Jesus paid for eternal sins, but he didn't pay, or eternal punishment, but he didn't pay for the temporal punishment due to sins. And particularly, like the Catechism says, venial sins merit temporal punishment. So um, what does that mean? It, it means that if you do not atone for those temporal punishments on earth, meaning you know, you're not punished directly by God, or in other ways you can atone for them is by trying to be a better person, by loving people or giving alms to the poor, things like that are, are things that my opponent cited, um, are ways that you can atone for your venial sins. You can atone for the temporal punishment due to your venial sins by um, doing good works or by going through trials on earth. So that's kind of a basis of purgatory. So they so they take that idea and then they deduce from that that if you don't pay for your don't pay for the temporal punishment of sins on earth, then you're gonna have to pay for them after death in purgatory before you can actually go to heaven. So that's the idea. Um, there's a number of, of reasons that, that is wrong. Um, and the first reason that I would say that's wrong is because of um, Jesus' atonement. Um, the, the atonement of Christ, atonement means to reconcile. And particularly with regard to atonement that Jesus accomplished is that he's reconciling God and man by taking away the guilt of sin. Okay, so he's being an atonement, reconciling God and man by being a propitiation. And a propitiation simply means the turning away of, of wrath by sacrifice. So, so Jesus, by taking the penalty that I deserve, on himself, he has is, he is made it so that God's justice is satisfied so that I can be at peace with God. So again, here, here's something from the Catholic Catechism on Purgatory. It says, on the other hand, every sin, even venial, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures, which must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state called Purgatory. This purification, namely Purgatory, frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. So for that temporal punishment, you have to go to purgatory to be freed from it. But what I'm saying is that Jesus has paid the full penalty, not just not just atoned for mortal sins. Of course, I would reject the distinction between mortal and venial sins. But not just atoned for some sins, but has atoned for all sins and taken the full penalty. For example, Colossians 2 here, he has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Um, Hebrews 10, 14, for by single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, right? And the Bible speaks of uh, justification, that is, being forgiven of our sins on account of Jesus's perfect righteousness um, and his substitutionary death on the cross. He, the Bible speaks of that as cleansing us from our sins, like right there in, in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, um, by his death, um, we have that, that cleansing of sin, that forgiveness of sins. You know, Romans 5, 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, 
right? So by what Jesus did, by his death, we are justified. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So atonement, reconciliation is accomplished by Jesus completely, not by us at all. So we are already, true believers who trust in Christ alone are already fully in relationship to God and in, in, in a peaceful relationship to God rather um, so that he holds nothing against them and he will not punish them um, for their sins. Even Isaiah 53, 5, the chastisement that brought us peace that was laid on Jesus. But that raises a question. This is, this is the objection that the Catholics will give. Um, they say, well, then what was this business of David being punished for his sins if Jesus has already paid for all of his sins? But there's a big difference between suffering of atonement, as in suffering to atone for your sins. There's a big difference between that and being disciplined by God as your father. So my second argument in my opening statement of the debate was um, the foundational argument for purgatory is temporal punishment for venial sins and the believer atoning for his venial sins before he's able to go to heaven. That's the basic argument as I laid out before. Yet in scripture, there's no evidence of anybody atoning for their own sins in this life or the next. So what, what do we make of David? Well, it's discipline. See, David was not atoning for his own sins when he was punished for taking the census. He was being disciplined. Big, big difference between atonement, suffering of atonement versus uh, discipline. Believers are disciplined as sons. It's not reconciling enemies. See, because Jesus has provided atonement, we are already reconciled to God. There's no more atonement that can be done. There's no more atonement that's needed. Remember Romans 5 just said that we have been reconciled to God by Jesus. So what is this discipline? Discipline by God as our father after we already have been reconciled. After Jesus has made atonement, we are reconciled to God and made his sons and daughters. Well, God disciplines us. Now, this is in the category of, of sanctification. He wants to make us more like Christ in our walk. See, Jesus accomplishes justification by his life, death, you know, burial, and resurrection. That's being declared righteous legally. But, but God doesn't just leave us as, um, as declared righteous legally, which is the grounds of getting into heaven. But distinct from that, he also um, makes us born again, gives us a new heart, and then embarks us on the process of sanctification, which is putting sin to death and becoming more and more like Jesus as we go through our life. Now, because we are our sons and daughters, if we're real Christians, God's going to have to have to discipline us so that we can become more like Christ. So we have like this in Revelation 3.19, God saying, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So when a Christian's in sin, you know, like David was, for example, God had to discipline him to show him the heinousness of his sin so that he'd be zealous to repent of it and to avoid it in the future. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 is a great section in scripture about discipline in the Bible. It says, it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see, the discipline of God is actually evidence that you are a Christian, but it doesn't make you a Christian or it doesn't accomplish full forgiveness or full atonement for sins. Verse 9, he says, besides this, we have, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. 
but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. You see that? Discipline is so that we can progress in holiness, right? It's for our good. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, if, if, since God wants to make us more and more holy, he has to discipline us. This is why Proverbs 3.11 and 12 says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. You see, very, very different than providing atonement for yourself. Discipline is God uh, disciplining, helping his, his children who have already been uh, reconciled to him. It's, he's helping his children live more, more and more Christ-like, to live more and more in obedience to him. There's a huge difference between providing atonement for yourself, for your, for your so-called temporal punishments due to your sins, versus the discipline that God will give to all of his children, which is actually evidence that they are true believers. And my final argument was about that, that when the Bible teaches that when believers die, they go straight to heaven. I won't go into all the detail on this right now, but for example, 2 Corinthians 5, um, uh, 8 says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Um, that's just one example. Um, you can check out the debate and get the, get the details of, of that. We talked about that a bit as well after my opening statement. But I wanted to talk about particularly um, one thing that I said in the debate that I'd like to add to. Um, so I'd like to look over here in um, Luke 16. This is the parable of the rich man and, and Lazarus. And, and basically, in, in, during cross-examination, uh, my opponent, Matthew Broderick, had brought a question to me. And he says, what, where is the rich man in this parable? Is he in hell or is he in purgatory? Was kind of the idea. And um, I'm going to read the parable and tell you what he said and then kind of add some things that I really wish I would have said during the debate. Uh, I just wasn't on my toes as much as I should be. And this is really the only area in the debate that I feel like I could have done or could have added something or where I could have been clearer or um, a little bit more on my toes with a better response. Um, so I'd like to do that here and now, just in case you heard that part of the debate and were thinking, hmm, maybe, maybe you didn't think my response was good enough. I wouldn't disagree because there's more I should have said. Um, so let's look at look at the uh, the passage here. It says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a lay, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would, who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said to them, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
He said to them, If they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, basically in this in the debate, uh, Matthew Broderick had asked me, he says, do you, do you think this is hell? And if you do... He's saying, I don't, he's saying, do you really believe that there's a such thing as compassion in hell? And he says that because the rich man says, please send him to go warn my brothers. And he's saying, there's no compassion in hell, so how could this be hell? Well, all I said in response to that in the debate, as far as I recall, I said, well, this is a parable. And um, essentially, there's one point to a parable. And the point of this parable is there at the end. He says, if Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So the main point of this parable is saying that, um, you know, the scriptures teach um, how to be saved. And they have the scriptures, and that's the thing. God, God saves people through the scriptures, even seeing miracles, even seeing somebody rise from the dead. Does, will not convince somebody that they need to be saved. It's by the grace of God through Moses and the prophets, which is what we call the Old Testament. So that's the main point. You also could get some other things here that, um, you know, the rich man lived his life and received his reward on earth, and then he got went to hell afterwards, and then the Lazarus, the poor man, had a hard life on earth, but he received um, the glorious um, he- heaven. Um, so, but, but Matthew Broderick's argument is saying, well, this guy couldn't be in hell. This rich man couldn't be in hell because he has compassion on his brothers and there's no compassion in hell. There's two responses I should have said besides what I already just said. One, he, he's begging the question. He's assuming that there's no compassion in hell. Okay. He hadn't, he didn't attempt to prove that. He just assumed it as true. And I should have called him out on that. Um, that's not necessarily the case. Now, again, you're not supposed to build doctrines off of the details of, of, of parables, um, but let's just say that this is a, a this is an accurate depiction of, of hell, like a literal depiction of hell, and it could be. Um, then what we have here is a guy who who is um, he's in he's in anguish. He 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 doesn't want his brothers to be in the anguish with him. Okay. That may be literal, it might not be, but there is there is no uh, there was no argument given that people in hell don't want compassion or don't want their people on earth to go to hell. Who knows? Um, again, I don't think we should build doctrines, mountains of doctrines, off of little things like parables, because this is not a, this is a parable. This is a, a story to illustrate a point. It's not a narrative of something that actually happened. Um, so. That's kind of something to consider. But secondly, and this this is even this is even more important. Check out um, here in verse twenty six, Abraham speaking. He says, "And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us." So Matthew Broderick, my opponent, is arguing that this place the rich man is in is purgatory. Yet Abraham says, "No one from where you are." can come to heaven. Well, that doesn't sound much like purgatory to me because the idea of purgatory is that everyone in purgatory eventually, whether through, you know, when they, when all of their temporal punishment for sin is atoned for, eventually they're going to end up in heaven. Well, Abraham says, there's no way. There's no way for anybody to switch sides here. So what you have here is the intermediate state, which means it's the place where people go and they die uh, before the final resurrection. So everybody who's dead now is in this intermediate state. 
um, which is the two the two parts of the afterlife, which is Abraham's side, which is the good side, the heavenly side, where where um, the saved go, and then there's the other side, which is where the rich man is here, which is the bad side, the the hellish side, the side of torment, which we see. Those those are you know divided so that nobody from either side can switch to the other side, according to Abraham here in this in this story. So there is no possible way that Romans 16 here or Luke 16 here this parable um, is referring to purgatory because it doesn't fit with the doctrine of purgatory. Two, I think it's a very weak argument um, just because it's arbitrary to say that there's no compassion in hell and also to build this doctrine off of a parable is not strong reasoning at all. So that's what I wish I would have said on that. Some some additional things um, that I wish I would have said said there. So um, that's what I wanted to add with regard to Luke 16. Um, a couple a couple other notes um, on on the debate. Um, this issue of atonement is is, is really really important. Um, there it was often there were often verses cited to me that we're trying to argue for self-atonement, that you can atone for your own sins by, by doing good works. One of them would be this verse here, 1 Peter 4, 8, he would cite it and say, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, he would take that to mean that when you love people, it covers a multitude of your own sins, meaning you're atoning for your own sins. Um, this is certainly not the meaning of the text. Um, it's It's... <clears throat> it's simply teaching that when you love, when you're loving somebody, you're going to forgive them of their sins. Peter's alluding to Proverbs, some Proverbs like Proverbs ten twelve. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. You see how similar that is. Love covers a multitude of sins, or love covers all offenses. Um, likewise, Proverbs seventeen nineteen. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. You see. When somebody comes to you and, and confesses their sin and repents of it, you forgive them. You cover it. A multitude of sins. You keep forgiving them. And you don't go gossiping about them and spreading it around. That's what it means. Now, the Catholic interpretation was, well, when you love people, you're going to atone for your own sins. You see how man-centered that is? Um, that's so backwards to what Scripture teaches. There is no evidence that um, anybody's atoning for their own sins, whether in this life or the next. Um, in the Bible. There's no evidence of that in the Bible. Similar phrasing here. He also cited this text, James 5. Uh, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Um, he, Roderick, my opponent, would would say this covers a multitude of your own sins. Um, but the meaning of this text is really simple. This the person who brings back the wanderer, the sinner, when he brings him back, he will save that wanderer from death and will cause that wanderer's sins to be forgiven or, or covered. Of course, the Christian who brings the person back is not the Savior, and they are not atoning for themselves, but they are bringing that person, the wanderer, to the Savior, and therefore saving that person's soul from death, as well as covering a multitude of their sins, because they're going to be forgiven by by Jesus, so that's that's kind of pretty obvious. Um, it is it is problematic when when you say, well, this is covering a multitude of your own sins. The person who's actually bringing the wanderer back, they're atoning for their own sins by doing that good work. 
Um, no, the, the scripture doesn't indicate that at all. The text certainly doesn't. It just says covers a multitude of sins. If you, if you follow it, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Whose soul from death? The sinner in his wandering. He'll save his soul from death and will cover, cover a multitude of sins. It's still talking about that wandering sinner right there. Um, yeah, so another, another, uh, another verse I wanted to talk about here, a couple here as well, just by the way. Um, he also cited a couple of, of illustrations from Jesus, a couple of uh, parables where it says that um, the person is put in, in prison until they should pay the, their debts. That would be here, Matthew 18 and also Luke 12. Matthew 18 is the parable of the unforgiving servant, um, which says, says at the end, the person who would not forgive his, his fellow servant was um, put in prison until he paid his 10,000 talent debt. Um, the, the point of that, though, he's saying, see, it's temporary. It's temporary punishment. He can pay out. He can get out once he pays his debts. But he's missed the point of G what Jesus is saying there. He's saying this guy has a debt that he could never pay off, and now he's put in prison. And when you're in prison, you can't pay off any of your debt because you can't work. So is it really a temporary punishment? No, it's an eternal punishment. He's saying he's put in prison until he pays his debts. Well, he can't pay his debts. He'd never be able to pay his debts ever because he's not even working. He's in prison. So the point is, is that he's going to go to hell. That's the illustration. Same with, with Luke uh, 12. Um, it says the judge will hand you over to the officer and the officer will put you in prison. I tell you, you'll never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Very similar. The point of this little section is to make peace with God before judgment day or else he'll put you in hell where you'll stay forever since a man cannot pay his debts while he is confined in prison. So prison does not equal purgatory anywhere. But this is, this finally was another text I wanted to expound upon some more because he made a few references to it. And I think it's a text that we didn't really get into as much as we, um, as much as we maybe could have, but uh, it's, it's an important text to him and it's an important text to understand what it means. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant in Luke chapter 12. So I'll read it here. Verses 41 to 48. It says, Peter, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for, for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on that day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him in with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him whom they entrusted much, they will demand the much more. So so his the Catholic argument was here was um, that these people are are believers, all of them, I suppose. <laughs> I mean at least the servants here at the end. Um, at least this at least this is what at least this is what was argued. Excuse me. Here's what was argued. That these last two servants, the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready to act, received a, a, a severe beating. Okay, so that is, uh, he's, he's going to go to purgatory. And then the person who doesn't know um, but still acts um, sinfully, he 
received a light beating. So you have these degrees of, of punishment and they're going to go to purgatory versus the guy up here who knew what he was doing and, and was just wantonly wicked and he gets cut up. I think they'd say that's hell. And then you have the first person who goes straight to heaven, I think. But they're saying, look, you have Christians here. Yeah, real Christians, servants of God, servants of God who who get beaten. They, they, they receive a beating because they say it says they're a servant. It says they're a servant of God. Well, here's the thing here. All of the people in this text are called servants, even the one who is cut up into pieces and put with the unfaithful. He says in verse 45, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now, I don't, that, that I think everybody should agree is, is hell, right? But he's still called a servant, as well as the other two people who received severe beating and a light beating. So what I'm saying here is that you have in this parable only one servant who's actually a believer, and that's the first one. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing, uh, so doing when he comes. Okay, the faithful and wise manager. That's what a Christian, um, a true Christian, is. But those who are, are wantonly rebellious, which would be this one that was cut up into pieces. This one is wantonly rebellious, who, who beats the male and female servants, who you know persecutes the church and things like that. He's going he's gonna to be receive the worst penalty in hell. Then you have this person who knows the master as well, but doesn't do anything about it. He knows, you know, so in this case, you know, he knows the gospel. He knows what's, you know, he knows what the Bible says, but just doesn't care. He's going to be punished and he's going to go to hell. It's going to be a severe beating. Okay, not as not as not as bad as the first guy, but still bad. Um, still really bad, I should say. And then you have the one who doesn't know, the ignorant person, the person who doesn't know the Bible, doesn't know the gospel. But yet he still is punished. Okay? Ignorance doesn't make you guiltless, but it does it does make you receive a less penalty because you're less less culpable because the more that you know it says everyone to whom much was given of much will be required so the more you know and then if you continue to reject christ and reject the gospel you'll receive a, a, a worse penalty i'm saying the one that was cut in pieces the one that received a severe beating and the one that received a light beating all of them are punished in hell only the blessed servant is the one that is a true believer that goes to heaven so again to summarize the blessed servant is the true Christian who follows God's commands. This is the only one that's saved. The other three servants are unbelievers who will receive differing degrees of punishment in hell. The open and wanton rebellion is the worst penalty. The knowingly rejecting God's commands, living your life in unbelief, but not in not in a wanton rebellion in the sense of total, total, you know, full-fledged wickedness in the sense of persecuting the church and things like that. Just your average unbeliever who who's familiar with the church, who knows the Bible a little bit, who knows what's he knows really the truth but rejects it, um, he's gonna get a severe beating. It's gonna be the second worst type of penalty. And then thirdly, you got the ignorant one, the one who doesn't know anything, but then also it is not repentant, does not trust in Christ alone. He's gonna receive a, the the least severe penalty. All of this, all of this in hell is horribly beyond imaginably bad. But there's degrees of, of badness, degrees of, of punishment there. And that's what we have in this parable, I believe. So it's not saying that, you know, you have true servants of God who receive a beating, a severe beating and light beating, and that's, and that's purgatory or anything like that. Um, rather, 
is that those people aren't believers at all. Um, just because they're called servants, again, in a parable, you don't, you don't go to the details and all that, but just because they're called servants doesn't mean that they are really Christians. Cause I, like I said, even the one who's cut into pieces and put with the unfaithful is also called a servant. Um, the point is, is that you have all these people who, who are created by God and there's, and this parable, there's four different responses or four different categories of people. Three of them go to hell, but receive various uh, degrees of punishment. While the first one, the blessed one, is the one who is actually saved. So um, those are some of the points that I wanted to, to add um, to the debate um, that I didn't feel like were, were really well fleshed out. Um, maybe going back maybe going back and looking at it myself would, uh, would help me see um, whether or not they were. <laughs> um, but that, that's kind of the idea. So the idea of purgatory... Ultimately, one of my main issues with it is one. I mean, it's not in scripture. There's no evidence of this of this um, third third place where people go after death. Um, there's no evidence of self atonement for sin either. But more than that, it actually contradicts the gospel because what it's saying is that Jesus hasn't atoned for all of your sins. And there's no way you can get around that if you're a Catholic. There's no way because if you're saying that you have to atone for your sins. Um, in purgatory, then that means that Jesus has not atoned for them. If Jesus has atoned for them, then, you know, then there's no need for purgatory. So there was there was a line of, of argumentation, or a line of questioning, rather, that I asked in the cross-examination um, that I think is is important, um, which is these, these questions. Um, if... Did Jesus die as a substitute for all your venial sins? And if the, if the answer is yes, that means he took the temporal punishment for sin, which means there's no necessity for to atone for your own sins, and therefore there's no purgatory. But if you say that Jesus didn't atone for all of our sins, then, you, then you're contradicting scripture, like Colossians 2. It says, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Hebrews 10, 14, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Well, if he didn't actually atone for all of our sins, he certainly hasn't perfected us in the sight of God. Um, Hebrews 10, 17, there's no longer any offering for sin. There's no more atonement needed because Jesus has already done it. Isaiah 53, 5, the chastisement that brought us peace. See, atonement's been, satis been made. God's wrath has been satisfied. We have peace with God. There's no more atonement needed. We can go straight in the presence of God because he considers us clean because of what Jesus did. There's, not, there's no um, purifying that needs to happen. Jesus has already uh, purified us legally by dying on the cross uh, for our sins. I think a key verse um, on this is Galatians 3.10 regarding purgatory and regarding these issues. It says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And my question was, do you believe that everyone who commits any sin is worthy of God's curse? And I don't really recall if he ever really got around to answering that. But clearly the text is saying that all sins deserve God's curse. That all of them do. Because if you don't keep everything, you don't abide by all things in the book of the law, then you're under his curse if you don't do them. What's God's curse referring to here? It's referring to the penalty for sin, the wages of sin, death. It's referring to, to hell. So doesn't this text, my question would have been, doesn't this text teach that all sins deserve hell, not just mortal sins? Indeed it does. 
says if you don't if you don't keep the whole law you're under the curse but then when it says when it says in verse 13 that Jesus redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us doesn't this teach that Christ has paid for every sin of believers since every sin deserves the curse you follow that <clears throat> this is really important every sin deserves the, the the curse the curse of God the wrath of God and Jesus redeems us from that by becoming a curse for us as it's written curses everyone who hangs on a tree so by his death on the cross he's taken the curse the full penalty for all for every sin that the believer commits there's no big category distinction between mortal and venial sins here all of them deserve the curse and jesus has redeemed us from them all see that's the gospel that's the good news and this is where purgatory rejects and contradicts the gospel and this text, I encourage you, if you're going to talk to people about purgatory, um, really get to know Galatians 3, 10 to 14. Really get to know it and use it because it is a very good, succinct argument against it. I could, even talking about 11, verses 11 and 12, uh, I'm not going to talk about that now, but if you look at those, very, very great arguments for justification by faith apart from works or justification by faith alone. That's uh, that's awesome. So really good text to, to debate with uh, Roman Catholics on. Um, so again, since every sin deserves the curse and that Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, there's no possible need for purgatory because all our sins had been atoned for. We had been totally forgiven, totally. All the, pen all the punishment has been paid. He's taken the curse, the penalty of the law. He's taken it on the cross so that there's nothing that the, the sinner, the Christian, can do or needs to do. It's all been accomplished by Jesus. Jesus did not come simply to make um, salvation possible. I should say merely to make salvation possible. He came to accomplish salvation. That's what it says he did. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified by a single offering. Matthew 1 says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not make salvation possible, but actually do it. And he did. So that's the good news. I hope that was helpful. We'll go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, wrap it up there. I would encourage you to check out the the debate that I did. I'll again, I'll put the link in the description of the video as well as in the description of the podcast on any podcast streaming service. It's me, John O'Rourke versus Matthew Broderick. Uh, is purgatory biblical? It's on the um, YouTube channel, The Gospel Truth, which is run by uh, Marlon Wilson. He's the moderator of the debate. He did a great job. Really, really glad to uh, to be a part of it. Hopefully, I can be a part of some more in the future. Um, so I hope that was helpful. I hope that gives you a decent overview of uh, purgatory and why it's wrong and uh, the debate. I'd love uh, for you all to check out the debate and hear the Catholic arguments um, straight from a Catholic and, and, and hear my uh, responses to it. Um, so, yeah, if you, if you would, share that debate with people, with anybody you know, especially with... Um, Roman Catholics or, you know, with other Christians to help them be equipped. Also, if you want to subscribe to the YouTube channel here for all our ministries, as well as um, on your favorite podcast streaming service, follow or, or subscribe to the podcast there. You'll, you'll keep up with these podcasts for our radio, as well as my evangelism encounters, um, which are also put up there on the streaming services. So with that, thank you again for, for watching or for listening. I uh, hope this was helpful to you. I hope this shows you the importance of, of knowing the scripture and uh, of the divide between Catholics and Christians and how to defend the truth of the gospel a little bit better. 
Um, so thank you again and God bless you.